Thank you, David. Well, go ahead and take a seat. Keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. If you haven't picked up your Matthew journal Bible, we've got some of those for you on your way out um, to enjoying barbecue. You go ahead and pick up one of those. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so thankful that you have loved this church and that we can throw our arms up, we can open our voices, our mouths, to to sing with our voices praises about you and how you have changed our hearts and changed our lives and given us hope. And so, Lord, we we joyfully submit this morning to your word, and I, I want us to display this as a church that has open hearts to receive whatever you're gonna say this morning through your word and that your spirit impresses upon us. So I pray that you would do that. And I pray for, for friends and brothers and sisters that aren't here this morning, especially uh, the snow, and I think of uh, a couple of our folks recovering from surgery and from sickness. And Lord, I pray that you would be with them, in particular, Bill Yonan and Shirley Ward. Would you be with each of them? Uh, Lord, would you encourage us to reach out with a text or a phone call to just encourage them? And I'm thankful for the way this church has shown up in their lives in the last two weeks to care for them when when they were sick and when they were recovering from surgery. And Lord, I I pray, Lord, as we think about um, Easter just a couple months away, Lord, did you impress on our minds right now who were those people that we're invested in, that you connected us with, that we need to give that invitation to, to come Be a part of Easter here on Sunday morning. Lord, I pray that you would do that work now in us. Lord, we're thankful to be disciples. And I pray for those of us that are still considering Jesus. How do we want to respond to him? I pray that this would be a moment in time where your spirit changes their heart and their mind. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We have this sweet graphic. Nathan Kirkpatrick, thank you so much for this. This is homemade. Um, In-house. I love this. The Clash of Authority is our series that we're in post-Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus truly does wield authority. He doesn't speak with empty words. And that his kingdom clashes with the world. What people had been desiring, what they were stuck in, it clashes with the religious system of Jesus' day at times. Even the religious system of our day at times. Other moments, his kingdom clashes with Caesar's declared power. But this morning, I want us to see that Jesus' authority is the perfect context for you and I as disciples who want to follow Jesus. We want to learn. We want to know what it looks like to keep in step with him. The clash of Jesus' authority with a number of different things and his supreme authority displayed is the perfect context for discipleship. You and I might not like that. You and I might not like that, and we'll get to it. But I think about this as a parent. I had a major breakthrough when I realized, I read this book called Love and Logic, and I think a number of you have read that as parents or grandparents or as a teacher. Like, how do you go about correcting kids? It can be difficult. It can be one of the most frustrating things when you're teaching the class back there or, or you're at a family meal and one of your kids just outright tells you, 
no. <laughs> and you know by their emotions that there's little give here to what's going on. I, I had a breakthrough because my gut reaction is to become frustrated or, or to be embarrassed by that situation. This reflects on me. Everyone's thinking how terrible of a parent I am. And, and the truth is that, that love and logic would say, actually, that might be the most important time teaching your class. That might be the most important time as a parent that you get to address and talk with in a patient way, not losing your cool, and in a humble way saying, yeah, I've got a lot to learn as a teacher or a grandparent with this particular kid. There's an opportunity to, te to teach and live out the gospel well, right here, Jesus is going to use an unusual context to show his authority and to teach his disciples. Because in this passage, we're going to see they have some blurred vision. I, I, I'm a corrective lens guy. I, I started wearing glasses in maybe sixth grade, and I hated them because I love basketball and soccer and dodgeball, and none of those things go together with glasses, right? You hear me? I see some of you out there with glasses. If you love being active, sometimes it's hard. It can be very difficult. And I remember breaking my glasses over and over so I'd get really cheap glasses and cheap glasses break easier. In fact, when, when Heather met me, I think, I think I was missing half of my glasses. And the other, the other part of my frame was taped on. I mean, it, look, it looked terrible. Uh, I'm shocked she said yes, to be honest, because that's, that's what I looked like. So thankful for the day of corrective eye surgery, right? But... But think about this, the disciples don't see clearly. And some of us have experienced that, what it looks like to squint at a movie theater or to take off the glasses for a basketball game and not really be able to see the rim or whatever it is for you. Who Jesus is and why he came is not quite in focus for them. And so right here, with two experiences with the disciples, Jesus is going to give us two lenses to better see his authority, his relationship with his disciples. That's what we're going to see right here. At the very end, besides the two lenses, we're going to see a heart check that Jesus is going to give us as disciples to check our own hearts to evaluate them but there's one truth there's one big idea that all of this is going to revolve around and it's this that Jesus's authority deserves unwavering trust from his disciples what does Jesus expect what does he demand let alone ask for from his disciples that you would trust me no matter what this is what we're going to see it's a little scary right it might be the best place in the world, and you disciples can attest to it, but it's not always safe or comfortable to give Jesus our complete and our full trust. Now, when we talk about disciples in this passage, and when Michael says, or Matthew talks about disciples, he's using a pretty broad category of those people who follow Jesus. Right? They might be at some different places spiritually, we're going to find, but they follow Jesus. In particular, those who literally follow Jesus as he went from village to village, um, as he's getting in a boat, as he's traveling by foot, they were with him for his three years of ministry. And so Jesus took note of the crowds. He's just healed a leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mom. He's shown his authority over sickness, over disease. And there's a crowd. They're not disciples. They're a crowd. They came to see. And so Jesus says, 
let's depart to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so his disciples go to prepare a boat for him to get away from the commotion. And as they ready the boat, you have to imagine the crowd and then the people getting on the boat. This is going to be the distinction between those who are part of the crowd and those who follow Jesus. First, a disciple comes. He's a teacher of the law. So he is coming from the religious system of the day, a Jewish scribe. He taught the law to people. And he approaches Jesus in verse 19 of chapter 8, and he says this. He says, teacher, which is a big clue in Matthew. Because what did, what did the leper, what did the centurion address Jesus as? You remember from last week? Lord, Lord, very different word here, teacher, rabbi, right? You teach us what we should do, how we ought to live. And here he is a scribe saying, you know, you're my teacher. So there is some level of respect, but at the same time, he's not saying, Lord, uh, master. There's a distinction right here that Matthew highlights, a contrast. But he says this, he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go. Now, it's a bold, it's a bold claim. It's kind of like Peter, you know, when, when Jesus says, you're all going to deny me, you're going to fall away. And, and Peter says, Lord, they may all fall away, but I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus has to tell him, well, you're only going to deny me three times before the morning. Right? Here's this bold claim of the disciple, Peter-esque, where Peter says, I'll never deny you. This, this man commits himself. I'm going with you, Jesus, wherever you go. So I've got a question for you. Have you ever committed yourself to something and you really didn't know what you were quite committing yourself to? I've done that. I can done that. I've done that. This is what the scribe has done right here. He doesn't quite understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? What's that going to look like? And so in verse 20, Jesus says this, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So some of you love traveling. We, li we live in a day and age of traveling, but the hard road of traveling with Jesus is going to be this. Not that Jesus was poor necessarily, but as he's traveling around, there would be very little comfort. Jesus is saying, there's going to be hardship on the road ahead. You know, if you get in the boat, if you leave your village, it's not going to be easy. You're going to be hungry sometimes. You're not going to have a bed or a blanket or a pillow. It's going to be uncomfortable. You need to know this. I'm not guaranteeing any security in this life if you get in the boat. That's what Jesus is saying. The Son of Man. He doesn't have a place to lay his head in this world. Jesus the Messiah. His palace is, is not on this earth. It won't be comfortable. And so he wants to let this disciple know, here's my expectation. Those who follow me, they're giving up some comforts. They're going to give up the security of knowing or the dream of knowing I'm going to have a comfortable life. 
Here's the first lens of trust. It's this. It's an unconditional trust. An unconditional trust. An unconditional commitment. Jesus calls us as disciples to an unconditional commitment to follow him. There's no going to Jesus and saying, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. It didn't happen. Whatever, whatever that dream was, whatever that circumstance in your life, whatever you were longing for as you were following Jesus, what happened didn't. There's no going to Jesus and saying, you know, X did not happen, and, and therefore I'm done. I don't want to follow you anymore. It's a breach of contract, Jesus. You know, I expected you to do this for me. Jesus is saying, no, that's not what following me looks like. You need to understand what you're giving up and how hard it's going to be. I'm not going to rise and rise to glory. I, I'm actually going to be crucified at the end of these three years. You need to understand. That's not going to be comfortable for my disciples to see or to witness. But he is saying following Jesus is worth it. Come follow me. It's worth it. Jesus isn't just turning the guy away and saying, no, you don't want to follow me. He's saying, it's not going to be comfortable. There's going to be some security that you might see other people have, and you're not going to have it. It's not how my kingdom operates. And so this morning, here is Jesus' grace to us, that there might be a condition that's floating around in our mind, whether you're conscious of it before you walked in this room, or it's right now in this moment that you're realizing what's unconsciously the condition that you have put on Jesus. If I follow you, then this will happen. And so right now, what I want you to do is think about what is that condition that God has to do this in my life for me to follow Jesus? I have to have it for my security, my hope, my comfort in this life. Think about what that is. I'm not saying it's a bad thing you're pursuing that or want that right now, but here's what I want you to do. This has to be clear in the disciples' mind. It's what Jesus lovingly does for this guy. I want you to put following Jesus on the other hand. And right now, God wants us to say, this condition for this life versus experiencing and enjoying Jesus as a disciple. And I want you to, to consciously think about it. Is that really a condition you want to put in front of experiencing Jesus? That's what he's saying to this man. That's what he's saying to us right now. It's a part of his grace to decide in our mind that we would say, that we would say, absolutely, it's worth following Jesus. I, I would give up this. You know, this pales in comparison to experiencing Jesus, to having the hope of being his disciple that he's worthy of unwavering trust. Okay, so another disciple comes, and we see a second lens right here. Jesus gives a, a reason for, for, or a disciple comes and gives a reason why he's not going to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus, I'm, I'm not getting in the boat. Right, Matthew describes him as a disciple. He's been a follower. Uh, Jesus would expect, maybe Jesus has asked him, hey, get in the boat with me. But he comes and he tells Jesus the reason why he's not going to go. It's this. He says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Let me go bury my father. Now, no commentators agree on this, what exactly this means. And to be honest, there's very little that we get to work with. I mean, the, the man's dad could have just passed away. 
And maybe he just he wants to honor his dad. Or, you know, per, you know, perhaps his dad isn't that old or frail. And he's just he's saying, I want to be around when they give out the inheritance. I mean, wouldn't that be great, Jesus, if I showed up with your ministry and I had this money to contribute? Or, I mean, maybe you, you would have a place to lay your head, just like the foxes and the birds. We don't know. We're left guessing, but what's helpful is that it's not as important as what Jesus says, knowing where this guy's come, coming from. The second thing that I want to say is that Jesus knows this guy. Even though we don't, Jesus knows this guy. Not only the personal details, but he, he knows. He's God. He knows the timeline of his father's life. He knows all the details of his family. And so I want to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt here. When he says these words to a guy who says, I, I want to bury my father, he says, follow me. It's surprising. Follow me. But Jesus knows, and so I, I give him the benefit of the doubt. He's saying, it's better for you to follow me. It's better for you to get in the boat and go with me. What we see is that this disciple doesn't understand. Jesus is going to take three years to go around and to preach about his kingdom. Think about it, three years. Would you want to be there? I would want to be there. Knowing what I know now, how he's changed me and shaped me, I would want to be there. And I don't think this disciple understands what's about to happen. I'm gonna preach about this kingdom. I'm gonna share things with you that are so confusing. You're gonna wanna ask me about them, but you're gonna be so scared to even say a word to me. It's gonna be confusing, but come be with me. Come be with me. And then I'm gonna lay down my life and I'm gonna rise from the dead. You see, this guy comes and he thinks that he's going to follow around one of the greatest teachers that he's ever heard, that he's going to get in the boat and follow him around. That's the first guy, right? He's not expecting, like the second guy, that he's going to follow around his Messiah who has authority over God's kingdom. That he's going to give his life. He doesn't expect it. And so this is the second lens that Jesus clarifies his authority with. It's this, that Jesus calls us to undivided affection. Jesus calls us to undivided affection. It means we have a single purpose, a loyalty that's clear. People can see this is what you're most devoted to or who you're most devoted to. When it comes down to it, that you would suffer the loss of so many things if you just don't miss out on the one thing or the one person, Jesus. That's what he's calling this disciple to. Now, we don't understand the details, but Jesus does say this, let the dead bury their own dead, which seems incredibly disrespectful, but it's actually some of the most creative wordsmithing in the Greek. Jesus is saying... I want you to leave the spiritually dead to bury those who are physically dying. That's what he's saying to this guy. It's not a blanket, it's not a universal for every disciple, but there's a principle for us that we can pull out of this, and it's this. Jesus is saying to the man, you have an inkling, you have a desire to come and follow me. I asked you, I know you, you're my disciple, I'm encouraging you to come even though you have, you have a big excuse not to, right? You have a big excuse not to. My father, 
I want to honor him. I want to bury him. But he's saying, there's a spiritual desire in you. I have called you. I have changed you. And I'm telling you to come. 99.9% of the people in your village have zero desire to get in the boat with me. But you're thinking about it. And you're thinking about why you wouldn't. And I want you to know the reason why your heart is different is because you're my disciple. I want you in the boat. Jesus is encouraging him to come in the boat with him, that he's his disciple. Your, your dad will be honored. He'll be cared for. There are people here, is what Jesus is saying, but I have three years of ministry in my body before I die on the cross, before I'm resurrected to my glorified body. And are you satisfied to stay here in the village? Get in the boat with me. Jesus is encouraging him. Now for us, for us, think about this. What would we give up in order to experience Jesus? Think about it. Where do our loyalties lie? It's very similar, right? What are we devoted to? But what are we loyal to? What do we want? What do we set our heart and our affections on? Because right here, Jesus says that our undivided affection as disciples shows an unwavering trust that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is worth following, giving up our life for. But then we see, we see a final picture, a heart check for the disciples. Matthew moves into Jesus actually gets in the boat. And look at that, verse 23. You see the division. And when he, Jesus, got in the boat, his disciples followed him. Which is so interesting. We don't hear about these two guys. We don't hear who actually gets in the boat. We don't know if they came with Jesus or they stayed. Really interesting, but this is what we do know. His disciples, his followers, those who said, I'm going to give up the farm. I'm going to leave my parents. I'm going to give up the fishing business, and I'm going to go with Jesus. Probably going to live hand to mouth Jesus says, I'm not going to have a pillow to sleep on. It's not going to be comfortable. But they get in the boat right here. And what happens? You know, the disciples, the, the guys who said, yes, I'll go with you in your ministry. What a unique call. Here's what happens. A storm rises. Up on the lake, the wind picks up. becomes treacherous. The waves start to swell and, and all of a sudden, the waves are so big that they begin to crash over the boat. Pretty soon, the boat's not just full of disciples. It's, it's full of water. It's, it's sinking. And, and these disciples, some of whom are professional sailors, they have made their living sailing on this very sea, are panicked and fearing for their very own lives. Okay, now where's Jesus in all of this? He's asleep, right? This is his retreat from the crowds getting in the boat. If, you know, if you're an introvert, take hope. Jesus was an introvert too, right? He was tired after all this ministry. He falls asleep on the boat. So yes, you can take hope. You can use this passage against me in meeting people. Sure, go for it, Right? We can be tired from being around people, and Jesus was. He took a break. But it's in the storm. And, and so the disciples 
wake him up. And they say, save us. We're drowning. We're going to die. Literally, they say, save us, Lord. That's interesting right there, okay? We've heard, we've heard the name, Lord. That helps us understand what they think about him. Master, we're following you. You can tell us what to do. And yet, in Jesus' hands, they are afraid right here. They think that they're dying. Now, this is a chaotic moment, right? The, the waves coming over, all of this happening. And yet, what does Jesus do? I mean, he does the thing that you, you hate when your Christian friend does, you know? Like, life is terrible. I got this going on. And they're like, you know, this is really a discipleship moment, you know? We're going to learn about this. This is good for us. We're going to grow through it. What does Jesus do? He doesn't do anything until, until he talks. He addresses the disciples. Why are you afraid? Your faith... <laughs> Your trust, it's insufficient. Let's learn from this, right? Before he does anything. But then he rises from sleeping. And he says to the wind, to the sea, just like he said to the leper. Just like he said about the centurion servant when the the Roman's servant was miles away. He said the words, and that servant was healed. The leper was cleansed. Jesus says to the wind and waves, be calm. He rebukes them. And what happens? Peace. It's a placid water. No more wind Water's not coming into the boat anymore. The boat's not even rocking in the waves. Everything is still. Jesus' Jesus's disciples, they marveled. What kind of man can tell the wind and the waves be still? Well, they knew because the Psalms talked about it. Just like Psalm 89.9 says this about God. You, God, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You're in control of even the waves. No one can do that. No sailor would try to control the waves. You put up with them. No one in a storm sailing on the Sea of Galilee is going to lean out and say, Peace, be still. But Jesus does that. And and what's even crazier is they obey. We see a picture of all of creation bows to Jesus' authority, but so should his disciples. That's the picture we see right here. That's the contrast. Even his creation obeys him in this story, the wind and the waves, but his disciples have still yet to trust him with an unwavering trust. Some of you, it is awesome this day on the three-year anniversary to just dream about the future. But at the same time, we need to say this. Though we've invested in our community, we dream about more. We're invested in the next steps in our children's ministry. We've got to admit that we have some desires. Sometimes those desires become conditions. You know, like Jesus, this has to happen, you know in order for me to follow you, for me to be in, for me to be invested. 
And I want to share right here on this day, the most spectacular thing ever would be this. If Jesus can use these disciples who are panicked and afraid, their trust is far from confident in who Jesus is. They don't know who he is. If he can use them, a little faith, to begin his church after he rises from the dead, what do you think Jesus can do in this community? With an assembly, with a gathering of people that have an unwavering trust in Jesus without conditions, without division, in unwavering trust. That gives me more hope for what God's gonna do through us than any amount of money, any kind of influence we have in the community. The picture for us this year and when we celebrate 13 years, 10 years from now is this, that we are disciples that say we're under Jesus' authority and we feel like together we can surrender to him with an unwavering trust. Let's be that church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are worthy of trust without conditions because, Lord, my faith is weak and I bring conditions all the time. And often those discourage me, but, Lord, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help us. Lord, that when we're met by um, discomfort, suffering, grieving, uh, pain, loss, Lord, that you would give us an unwavering trust, that you would show us that Jesus, who died for us, is worthy of us putting our faith in him. Not only that, he calls us as disciples to have that kind of trust in him. Lord, would you refine us this week as we celebrate three years with happy hearts for what you've done. Give us vision, Lord, about how we're gonna serve differently how about we're going to follow you differently? How we're going, to, we're going to be husbands and wives and we're going to be community members and parents and teachers and coworkers differently because of an unwavering trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.